Well, have you noticed that as food packaging gets bigger and brighter, the contents get smaller and smaller and smaller. Like this cup of gummy bears. Looks pretty good, right? Full cup of gummy bears. Until you take the lid off and you realise there's only about 10 in there. Companies do this sort of thing all the time, right? Pepperoni pizza, where all the pepperonis are only in the see-through part of the packaging. <laughs> Salmon, where the sticker covers up an empty space. Now, that just feels wrong, doesn't it? That is so deceiving. I love this one for its sneakiness. Uh, it says, this packet will get you two extra hot dogs. You think, fantastic, but then you turn it on its side, they've just taken two out of the main section. So blatant. The world's full of stingy products from sellers trying to make a profit from us. And to be honest, we're kind of used to it now. You know, we open up our packet of chips and we think, oh yeah, of course it's only a quarter full at that point. We're used to it. We're used to people promising far more than they can deliver. And you know, I reckon loads of people think the same is true of God. God is stingy. God is holding out on me. God just wants to ruin my fun. Why would I follow him? And I think sometimes churches can actually fall into the trap of offering more than they can actually deliver, more than God actually promises to us in the Bible. And so when you go to some churches, everything looks so perfect on the outside. Everybody up the front has perfect white teeth, they're perfectly manicured, they've got the perfect right outfits. The packet of Christianity is sometimes so shiny, it's kind of gross. And when you open it, you realise that what's inside is not what is actually portrayed to be. Now look, if you're new and you're visiting us here at Hunter Bible Church, I, I doubt you've found that the case so far in your experience. I mean, so far, all, all you've done is you've walked through some school gates into a manky school hall that's painted, have you noticed this? It's painted blue with red structural pylons. Why do they do that? I mean, we do everything we can to make it comfortable, but we're not the terribly shiny product on the outside. But what we hope that we are, as a church, is real, authentic, genuine Christianity. We hope that that's what you'll find here amongst us, with all the warts and bumps and bruises on display. But just because we're messy, and just because our lives are not perfect... It doesn't mean that God is stingy. In fact, it actually magnifies His generosity. It helps us to see just how badly we need the grace and forgiveness and kindness of God and just how magnificent and wonderful it is that God has gifted that to us in the person of Jesus. And we see this on display in this first miracle in Cana. Now, just to orientate us in the book of John... Uh, uh, John and Al have done a little bit of this already, but there's a whole bunch of signs or miracles that Jesus performs throughout the Gospel of John, throughout the biography of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And this is the first one of those miracles. John tells us that this is the first one in there, there in verse 11. He says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. So John kind of starts out by listing out the signs or the miracles and 
he doesn't keep on numbering them though. He, he, he lists out the first couple, but then he doesn't keep on numbering them. But essentially what we're looking at in this series is a whole host of signs or miracles that Jesus has performed and, are, and then are written down for us. And what we're meant to see is that all of these miracles that Jesus performs and are recorded for us by his friend John, their overall purpose... Their overall purpose was to point out to those who were present and to those who are listening now to the words of John that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Saviour King. So John 20, 30 to 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So you have to kind of keep that overall purpose in the back of your mind as we roll through this series week after week. But each individual sign actually tells us a whole bunch of other stuff about Jesus and his Father that we will dig into today. So what happens here? Well, Jesus goes to a wedding and, uh, and I love the fact that in the book of John and in Matthew and Mark and Luke as well, Jesus just does mundane things like this. He goes and he celebrates a wedding. He goes to a, probably a family friend or somebody in the village that's nearby uh, and his disciples and his mum are there with him also. And they're there at the wedding and they run out of wine. Now, have you ever been at a wedding where they've run out of wine? Well, if you came to my wedding, we ran out of beer. My dad's side of the family can drink copious amounts of alcohol and so we actually ran out of beer at our wedding and so my dad had to send a couple of my mates to go and buy more beer from the local bottle shop uh, a few blocks down the road. No one really knew, I didn't know until after the event, but it could have been kind of embarrassing for my dad, right? But in the first century, this would actually be a disaster. It's not only bad hospitality, but but in, in weddings in the first century, there was this kind of, you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back arrangement. If you give me this much value, I'll give you a gift of equal value. There are even records of people who were sued for not giving enough gifts at a wedding. Running out of wine was really insulting. The bridegroom and his family, they would have been mortified, shamed. And you can't just head down to be wine and spirits to buy some more. Which is why Mary appeals to Jesus. She understands the shame of the situation. Have a look what she says. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, verse 3, they have no more wine. Now what's Jesus going to do? Well, have a look in verse 6. This is what happens. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And so Jesus saves the day at the wedding. He creates wine from water and so everyone ends up happy. 
The party can go on into the night. The family is saved from shame. But there might be a couple of questions you're asking at this point. You see, some people have been rather sceptical that there was ever a miracle at all. And, and, and so some people have even suggested that Jesus didn't turn the water into wine at all. Everyone just pretended that that had happened in order to make the best of a bad situation. So have a look there uh, at a guy called Leslie Weatherhead. This is what he says. The wine runs out and water is served at Jesus' command. Entering into the spirit of things, they cry, why, that's the best joke of all. They lift their wine cups up and they shout, Adam's ale is the best ale of all. The bridegroom is congratulated by the master of ceremonies who carries the joke further still. Why, you have saved the best wine until now. It requires only a servant going through the room at the right time for a rumour to start. See, it was just a game. They kind of got a little bit out of hand and before you know it, people were saying there was a miracle at that wedding. But in verse 11, it tells us that the disciples believed in Jesus because of this. They trust Jesus as the Messiah because of this event which we saw is one of the purposes of the miracles in the book of John, that they would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, they hardly would do that if this was all just a big joke, just a game. And so instead of writing this off as a joke, we ought to keep an open mind. What if there really was a man named Jesus, who is the Messiah, who really did turn water into wine? Because that might change a few things. Especially when we see that this is actually much more than a party trick. This is more than an opportunity for Jesus to show off. It wasn't even simply that he felt sorry for the family and decided that he would help them out of a tight spot. There's more to it than that. Have a look at what John calls this miracle in verse 11. He calls the miracle a sign. Now, that's different altogether to a miracle, isn't it? Because the thing about a sign is, is they actually point you to something. Now, what's important about this sign? Youth, what's important about this sign? Come on. KFC, yes. Why is that important for you? You need, that's right, it tells you where you can get delicious fried chicken. From a long distance away, that big sign, that big cup on the, it says, come here to get fried chicken. You can't eat the sign, you can't drink the sign, but it tells you this is where you will find chicken. That's what the sign points to. And that's what signs do, right? They, and, and so we have to ask the question, well, what is this miracle, what is this sign pointing to? What is the point of Jesus turning this water into wine? And there's a couple of things that it points to. First, this particular sign points to God's abundant generosity. Have a look again at how much wine Jesus makes. Nearby, verse 6, it says, stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, one gallon, I had to do a little bit of maths here, is, is about 4.5 litres. And Jesus makes somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. Now, to put that in our terms, how much wine is that? That's somewhere between 550 and 800 litres of wine. 
But it's actually much more than that because Jewish wine, the wine that was made back in those days, uh, is much stronger than the wine that we drink. It's a little bit more like port, a higher alcohol content. And so what they would do is they would dilute the wine with three parts of water. So it says here that he made around about 700 litres of wine. That means Jesus makes approximately, in our terms, 2,800 litres of wine. That's 3,500 bottles of wine. That's 26,000 standard drinks. Now, for a village wedding with maybe a couple of hundred people, that seems over the top, right? And it's not rubbish wine that Jesus presents. This is not the wine you buy at Audi. This is the best of the best. This is, have a look what he says, verse 9. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water... Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Jesus brings out the best wine and he makes three and a half thousand bottles worth of it, completely over the top, massive overkill. Now, why does Jesus do that? Is he just a bad calculator and didn't work out you know how much people would actually need what are you meant to think about the person who produced two and a half, two, 2800 liters of wine you meant to think this person is ridiculously generous they're over the top and god and and god's messenger as god's messenger jesus is saying god is not stingy friends he's anything but stingy And in fact, from the very first moment we meet God in the Bible, we see that. We see His abundant generosity. So when God creates the animals in Genesis 1, He says, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and everything in it with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. Do you see the abundance there? He doesn't make just one type of fish and one type of bird, but he, but he says, let the waters teem with living creatures and birds fly across the sky, all different kinds. And then God blesses them and says, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water to, in the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. Because that is what God is like. He is abundantly generous. He's the God who gives us life. He's the God who gives us family and friends and food and wine and love and romance and movies and songs and marriage and sex and everything good that we have in this creation. Everything good that, ever, that we've ever had in our lives actually comes from the hand of God. Now, I don't know if you've realised that or, or, or maybe you realise that but you've stopped thanking him for that here's the thing though about god even if you've stopped thanking him for those things he hasn't stopped being generous to you and this is what it says in matthew 5 it says you have heard that it was said love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven course he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good 
and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Do you see what God is like? He's generous even to people who hate him. He caused the sun to rise and and sends rain for the evil as well as for the good. God blesses even those who curse him. I hope you can see that here in this passage. This, This is Newcastle, friends. Newcastle is full of people basking in the generosity of a God they do not even know. And he still showers them with gifts. You see why Jesus produces 2,800 bottles of wine at a country wedding? It's a sign and it points to God's abundant, overflowing, ridiculous generosity. But even then, Jesus is pointing to more than that. He's pointing to more than his generosity in creation. He's actually pointing towards God's abundant forgiveness. Now, we're going to see, we're going to find this a little bit hard to see because we're not Old Testament people, right? We're not familiar with all of the Jewish customs. customs. But, But for the Jews there that day who knew their Old Testament, they would have seen what Jesus was pointing to when he when he filled those particular stone jars with wine. See, the jars and the wine, they're actually laden with these old, this Old Testament imagery. For start, the jars that Jesus filled, they weren't just any old jars, they were jars that were used for ceremonial washing, it says. And part of the Old Testament law was that before you ate, you had to wash yourself ceremonially out of these jars. So Mark talks about it in Mark chapter 7. It says there, the Pharisees had, and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw that some of his disciples were eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. See, the Jews didn't eat back in those days unless they'd washed ceremonially from these special jars. And it wasn't about hygiene, it was actually a picture of sin. Uh, this whole washing business was, was a ceremony that symbolised the washing away of sin. Now, the problem for the Pharisees was that this cer- ceremonial washing had become a religious duty. They'd almost forgotten that sin wasn't actually something that you could physically wash away off your hands, but rather it's a problem with our heart. And in Mark chapter 7, Jesus corrects them for the way that they thought about this. He says, it's actually what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. See, the problem is actually in my heart. My heart contains all sorts of evil things like sexual immorality and theft and murder and greed and and so on. And those things demonstrate to me that my heart is unclean. My heart needs to be washed in order to be acceptable before a perfect God. And that ceremony they did was supposed to remind them of that. As you washed yourself, it was supposed to remind remind you that you needed God to actually clean your heart. You need forgiveness. See, these weren't just your everyday clay pots. They didn't double as uh, indoor plant pots for your indoor plant fetish. 
They were the washing away of sin jars. And then in the Old Testament, wine pointed to something else too. So God constantly talked about wine in the Old Testament, especially abundant wine. And when he spoke of wine, it was to symbolize his great promise of forgiveness. So take a look at these passages from the Old Testament. This is Amos 9. He says, The days are coming, declared the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. So this abundant wine points to God's abundant forgiveness. He's saying in Amos hundreds of years before Jesus, a time is coming, Israel, when I will forgive you. And when I do, it will be lavish. I'll bring you back to your land and I'll plant you there and I'll shower you with good stuff and the mountains will drip with wine. I'll, I'll give you so much wine that you'll still be gathering grapes when it's time to sow again. You won't have time to drink at all. In Isaiah, this is what he says. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast rich of food. Sorry, a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine. The best of meats and the finest of wines. On this day, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. See, God's promising a time here when death itself will end, when he'll wipe away tears and disgrace and sadness. He's promising them this wonderful time of forgiveness. And he symbolizes all of that with a banquet of aged wine, a symbol of luxury and outrageous, lavish riches from God. God's forgiveness and mercy and grace. And what does Jesus do? Well, he comes to the wedding in Cana and he floods the wedding with wine. 180 gallons of wine. More wine than you could possibly drink. He takes the jars that symbolise our need for forgiveness and, and he fills them with the wine of God's mercy. See, we don't see it straight away because our minds aren't kind of plugged into the Old Testament. We're not brought up with the images and the promises of the Old Testament, but they were. And when you know those promises, you can see what Jesus is pointing to as clear as day. He's saying, this is a sign, friends, that the time for forgiveness has come. It's a time for grace to drip from the mountains, forgiveness to flow down the hillsides, forgiveness uh, from God, from this ridiculously abundant and generous God. That's what this sign is pointing to. And the third thing this miracle tells us is that Jesus is the one who will bring the new age of forgiveness. Did you notice um, Jesus' mother's initial objection? Sorry, Jesus' initial objection to his mum. In 2, 4, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, this is what it says. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. I'd love to be there for that moment. Why do you involve me, mum? My hour has not yet come, he says. Now, what does that mean? Well, as we work our way through the book of John, what we will see is that the hour 
You'll keep seeing this phrase, the hour is actually the death of Jesus. It's the moment where Jesus climbs upon the cross and dies in our place. And not wine, but blood flows from the cross for our forgiveness. The cross is the moment where all the symbols of ceremonial washing jars and wine dripping from the mountains of Israel all come to fulfilment. The cross is the ultimate banquet of forgiveness. It is the place where Jesus' blood is poured out like wine. And there is so much forgiveness available there that whatever sin you have committed is forgiven. Every wrong thought that has entered your head is forgiven. Every spiteful word that has escaped your lips is forgiven. Every evil desire that is embedded in your heart is forgiven. Unintentional sins, sins of omission. Remember Mark 7? The evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly, they're all in our heart and God forgives them all through Jesus on the cross. As his blood drips like wine from the cross. And not just every sin you have committed, but every sin you will commit. And God will never bring them up. God will never hold them against you if you're someone who trusts in the death and the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus' blood washes it all away. See, that wedding was nothing compared to the cross. And if you're someone who loves and trusts Jesus for forgiveness, then the banquet that awaits you in heaven, well, it's far better than any wedding than you can imagine. Heaven is the ultimate banquet of forgiveness. It's a place where we'll, we'll finally get to, to drink wine with Jesus and sing with Jesus and rejoice with Jesus and every day we'll praise Jesus for the banquet of the cross. And friends, this is the God we worship here at Hunter Bible Church. And he's actually the exact opposite of our fears, isn't he? He's the exact opposite of the products that we talked about earlier on. God doesn't lure us in with dodgy packaging and then rip us off. God doesn't promise meaning and happiness and purpose and then, and, and then deliver drudgery and boredom and misery. But rather at the cross, Jesus pours out the incomparable riches of God's grace. That is what God is like. And we're the people he's shown it to. It is by grace we have been saved. Now, 2022 is not the start we were hoping for this year, is it? We were hoping for a global pandemic to be done and dusted. But we're still neck deep. But friends, Jesus remains the same. Can I remind you that if you're in a bit of a dry patch, if you find yourself in a dump, can I encourage you to drink in God's generosity to you? Trust again in Jesus' death and resurrection for your sins and just revel in that. And when you muck it up, maybe you've fallen into sin, come back to the cross and drink more of it. You know, a great test of whether you understand the grace of God is what you do when you sin or you'll find yourself kind of drifting away from God. Because it's very easy at that moment, isn't it, to, to run from God at that moment. 
or to punish yourself over and over and over again or to slip into self-loathing or or blame someone else And, and we don't need to do any of those things friends we don't even need to try and earn the forgiveness of God we just come back to the fountain of grace we own our sin to God and we, we drink up the forgiveness of God. This is why he died. This is why Jesus died on the cross for us. And the thing is, the thing that we see here is that you cannot exhaust God's generosity. You cannot dry up the cup of God's forgiveness. It's impossible. And so drink up. If you're not yet a Christian... Maybe you're here and you're checking us out physically or maybe you're here and checking us out online at the moment. Can I encourage you to, to let us know that you would love to find out more about Jesus? Put your details on that Connect card that's on your seat there and take it up the back to the person at the Connect point and, and they'll help you to find your way into the life of our church so you can find out more about who Jesus is and what he's done. And we want you, we want you to know the Jesus of John 2 because he's spectacular and and our passion is that thousands and thousands of people in Newey and Lake Mac might just know how spectacular he really is. Now the other thing you could do if you're here checking us out and you don't want to give us your details yet, well just come back next week. We're going to be looking at John chapter 4 and then John chapter 5 then John chapter 6 and John chapter 9 and John chapter 11 and John chapter 21. We're just going to keep working our way through the book of John, looking at these signs. And as you come and join us, you will see just how remarkable Jesus is. The other thing I want to say is, let's live, friends, out of the abundance of grace. As a Christian, it's very easy, I reckon, to kind of drift into uh, living out of duty or living out of fear or just living in a certain way in order to keep up appearances. And that's kind of the way our our world operates, right? The world uses punishment to motivate change, the world uses rules and shame and threat, and we've seen that, haven't we, during the pandemic? Step out of line and you're going to be punished. And and I find that I'm motivated by this as well, right? I was thinking about this the other day. The reason I have a gym membership is not because I cannot exercise at home. It is possible to exercise at home, but I will not exercise from home. I don't know why, I just cannot get myself to do it. But if I have a gym membership, then I am paying money and the money keeps me going. The money says I don't want to make, waste that money and so I go along to the gym in order to just kind of keep myself fit. Paying money helps me when I get lazy. But friends, the gospel is not like a gym membership. We don't live God's way because there's a big kind of financial stick waiting for us if we don't. Grace is to be the thing that motivates us. Sometimes you'll even hear people say within Christian circles, we have to balance grace with works or grace with obedience. But that's misguided. We, we don't balance grace with works and grace with obedience. Grace actually fuels our, our works and our obedience. God's grace means I, I'm saved from God's wrath and so I, I live out of gratitude. God's grace means I'm one of Jesus' people and so I have the chance now to glorify Him. And so I grab it with both hands. We don't manage or balance grace with works. We fuel our works by grace. 
And friends, this is who we want to be as a church. We want to be a church that celebrates what God has done for us, rather than drilling away at what we should do for God. We want to constantly celebrate the fact that we're loved and we're forgiven and we're free and we're adored and saved by by the God of the universe. And we want to sing. We want to sing about God's grace and talk incessantly about God's grace. When people come and visit us as a church, we want them to walk away thinking they're all about Jesus, not about religion. And we want to be able to say that the reason I live God's way is because of His abundant mercy. The message of the Bible again and again and again is that Jesus' death provides us with the deepest well of forgiveness that anyone can drink from. So can I encourage us this new year, 2022, to start drinking in the grace of God? I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wedding in Cana. When we read it the first time, it's always a strange passage for us to look at. But as we drill deeper into it and see the imagery of the Old Testament within the pages of John, we're blown away once again by your generosity, your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy. Father, help us to be people who, when we sin, when we muck it up and when we find ourselves in a dry spell, that we keep going back to the fountain of grace. We keep going back to the cross and finding our hope and our joy in Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to live not out of duty, but out of the abundant well of your grace and kindness and forgiveness. And we ask these things in your son's mighty name. Amen.